and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. Today, I'm talking with Adam Gelb, the president and CEO of the brand new Council on Criminal Justice. I'm on the council's board of trustees, so have gotten to participate in this new organization's launch, and I think the council's mission will be of interest to a lot of Probable Causation listeners. So I'm very excited to have Adam here today to talk about it. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Doliak. It's terrific to be here with you on the show, and even more so to have you as part of the board of trustees of our new organization. So why don't we start out talking a little bit about you? Can you tell folks what your background is in the criminal justice space? I can try um, <laughs> because I'm a bit of a rare bird in this field. I really have uh, bounced around in it for uh, almost 33 years now. I started uh, started my career as a reporter uh, at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution back in the 80s, uh, really at the height of the drug war, and uh, spent five years listening to the police scanner and, and making sure that the 11 o'clock TV news hadn't uh, scooped me on something, uh, but really had uh, a, long, a long period of experience experience on the ground um, uh, with police and prosecutors and medical examiners and everything that's involved uh, in, in covering the police beat. And uh, moved, from, moved from there to, uh, to Capitol Hill, then to, to grad school um, at the Kennedy School. I was one of a few people in the, in the class actually concentrating crime control and justice. You know, back then, everybody was interested in in crime, but studying uh, economics and and business and government and health and transportation policy and these other things. But uh, I um, I had gravitated by then on a, on account of what I had seen uh, on the streets uh, of Atlanta in '87, '88, '89, and '90, and so on, and uh, to the criminal justice field. Um, and I spent a year um, uh, or more back on Capitol Hill and. I- 94, right when the, the big federal crime bill was happening. I was on the Senate Judiciary staff and uh, worked on the Violence Against Women Act and uh, other other provisions in that uh, sprawling uh, piece of legislation. Uh, then I spent five years uh, in the state of Maryland um, working with the governor and lieutenant governor there on a whole set of uh, crime control initiatives across the state. Uh, and then uh, moved uh, back here to Georgia, where I am now, uh, to run the Sentencing Commission uh, under Governor Barnes, and then uh, ran a, a juvenile reentry program after Governor Barnes uh, surprisingly lost that uh, election in, in 2002, uh, but ran a, a juvenile reentry program uh, connecting kids coming out of the, the Georgia Department of Juvenile Justice with, uh, with treatment programs. And um, then for 12 years, uh, Jennifer, I ran the criminal justice work at the Pew Charitable Trusts, um, which is a body of work that has become sort of known as a justice reinvestment initiative. And uh, we did a lot of, lot of things, uh, search on national trends, highlighting sort of the high cost and low public safety return of many current criminal justice policies. But really the core of our work was to uh, help states figure out how to right-size their prison populations. And we worked with uh, 35 states, many of them twice, many of them with uh, adult and juvenile systems on trying to um, uh, trying to figure out how, how to do a better job with, with fewer resources. And uh, that's sort of all of that really, I think, in many ways culminated in 
uh, in the Council on Criminal Justice and the, 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 the notion that I had gathered over the years of just how powerful it is to bring people with different perspectives together uh, around issues and how powerful it is when and people who you would not normally think would agree about things actually do come together and agree uh, and agree about them. Yeah, so you've spent a lot of time talking with state and local officials and practitioners who are uh, trying to to make their criminal justice policies better. And, and you and I have talked a lot about what how fun it is to work in in a space where there is a lot of broad political interest in in criminal justice reform. So there's a lot going on in this policy space right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what the Council on Criminal Justice is and what the hole in the current landscape is that it's designed to fill? Sure. Um, The Council is going to have the expertise. We do have the expertise with you and and others uh, who are part of our leadership and the credibility and the mandate to really serve as a center of gravity for the field and an ongoing forum for the kind of consensus building uh, that I was talking about across all stakeholders and perspectives. And that's really something our field doesn't currently have. You know, there, there are a lot of organizations that are doing absolutely incredible work to improve safety and justice. Uh, but to varying degrees, they don't necessarily have the access to or the standing with policymakers that the council is designed to have. Um, and, and so, Right. Definitionally, what the council is, is really a two-part organization. Uh, one is invitational membership piece, and the second is uh, think tank. And the first part is a little bit sort of uncommon, certainly in criminal justice. I think it's it's unique in the criminal justice arena where we have lots of professional associations, whether it's prosecutors associations or corrections associations or defenders. Um, um this is one that both pulls together all of those different sectors and and beyond including of course research um, and academia um uh and is also selective and says that we really are looking to create an organization of the top thinkers and doers the most uh innovative uh and creative people in the field who've had impact and who have potential for impact in the years down the road on the field um, and create uh, that true kind of crossroads for, um, for people to, uh, to come together um, and build, build relationships across the different ideologies and sectors of the field uh, and, um, and really sort of sustain the momentum of the moment we're in. I I think we'll talk about that a little bit uh, more later, but um, that's, that's the, the membership piece of it in a nutshell. The think tank piece, I think we'll be doing um, the, the, the kind of things that you'd expect from a, from a think tank, or, um, both original uh, research and synthesizing research and helping really translate what is being produced by the field uh, for policymakers. And I think for you and your, your listeners, um, that heavily is going to include the economics and cost benefit uh, pieces uh, pieces of this. Uh, those are uh, there's a tremendous amount of work that you and others are doing in the field that uh, needs and really deserves a broader audience with uh, people who are in decision making positions, whether they are elected officials uh, or appointed officials. Uh, running corrections or uh, policing uh, law enforcement agencies, the courts, and so on. And so we think uh, we uh, have an ability to 
uh, serve as a, as a really credible and trustworthy, honest broker of those kinds of uh, information to, uh, to policymakers and, and a place that they can come to trust. Uh, for me, the sort of the most exciting thing about, uh, about the council is the combination of those two pieces the invitational membership piece and the think tank. And that is uh, that one of the most uh, uh, common things, and I think, and I hope impactful things that we will do is to form task forces of members and uh, ask them to uh, put their heads together around what the research says about a particular problem and to fashion uh, policy policy recommendations and solutions. And you know, our, our, our theory is, uh, and I think we've seen this in other fields, that when you have a diverse group of stakeholders come together and say, we've taken a look at the research, and uh, this is where we think policy ought to move. And those people are among the more well-regarded, credible uh, people with stature in the field, that people will listen and, and take those recommendations and act on them. So it is a, a very diverse set of members. Do you want to give some examples of, of some of this diversity? Sure. And um, it, it, it was just really wonderful as we st uh, started off on this last year, uh, in less than a year that we've been up and running, um, but to get the kind of response that that we have gotten from all sectors of the field and, and some really fabulous people. So we have a board of directors, and that is our governing board that has legal and fiduciary responsibility for the organization and people who have the time and the ability to, to help us uh, roll up their sleeves and, 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 and build this, this, this new thing. Uh, and that includes uh, uh, people like uh, Roy Austin, who, who was on President Obama's White House uh, Domestic Policy Council staff and is a former U.S. attorney. Uh, includes uh, Flozell Daniels, who is the CEO of the Foundation for Louisiana and has been uh, just a, a central player in all of the uh, criminal justice reforms over the past many years in, in, that, uh, in that state. Uh, includes Timothy Head, who is, a, uh, is executive director of the Faith and Freedom uh, Coalition. Uh, Gil Kurlikowski, who was police chief in uh, Buffalo and Seattle and was the, the drug czar also under President Obama. Um, our our Board of Directors Chair is a woman named Lori Robinson, who is probably familiar to many of your listeners. Lori is uh, someone who, for a total of 10 years, was the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Justice Programs at DOJ, and therefore um, uh, knows probably more people across the country in the criminal justice field, from law enforcement to courts to corrections uh, and advocacy uh, than anyone. And so is, is really just the kind of perfect person to help pull together and identify the, uh, the right people who are going you know, to participate in this organization. You know, people who are uh, not committed necessarily to any particular policy agenda uh, at all, but um, although many of them are, uh, but to come together as part of a council that says we're, we are uh, about facts and data and fundamental principles of justice, uh, whether, whether you're on the right or left of the uh, political spectrum uh, and so on. Um, uh, you obviously are, are part of our board of trustees, which is our advisory board. And that is um, uh, a group of, of, of really talented and amazing people as well. Uh, that board is chaired by 
uh, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates and Mark Holden, uh, Senior Vice President of Coke Industries, uh, which obviously is a, is a pairing that we uh, we think demonstrates the, that commitment to facts and evidence and, and, and fundamental principles of justice, despite differences that exist on many other levels uh, of policy and politics. Um, it also includes uh, Senator Mike Lee uh, from Utah. Uh, it includes uh, DeRay McKesson, who is a co-founder of Campaign Zero, um, and uh, then many uh, people from across the criminal justice system, uh, from policing uh, to courts. Uh, we we have strong representation from California, including former Governor Jerry Brown and the Chief Justice of of California, and 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 so on. So um, we're really pleased with the the depth and the breadth and the diversity of the perspectives that are part of um, our, our governing board and the advisory board of trustees. And so part of the goal, I think, is just getting all these people in the room together to talk to each other. Um, but I gather part of the goal is also to reach consensus on some tough policy issues. To what extent do you think that's possible? I think it is more possible today than it has been in a generation. Um, it is really stunning uh, how far this issue is coming. It really used to be one of the most divisive issues in American politics, uh, perhaps not as, as, as much as, as abortion or some gun control issues, but it really used to be the wedge issue that, that, uh, that the parties tore each other apart with. And for a whole set of reasons, which we can talk about if you'd like, um, that has transformed into um, a very different unrecognizable situation where the ground is really fertile for uh, for bipartisan uh, agreement. And I think we've seen that in the 35 or so states now, I think pushing closer to 40 states that have passed some type of criminal justice reforms. Uh, and certainly at the federal level with the, uh, the passage in late 2018, uh, just over a year or so ago now, of the First Step Act. Um, I mean, it's also just stunning if you're a football fan to have watched the Super Bowl the other night and to see that uh, the two presidential campaigns that took out those horrendously expensive ads during the Super Bowl, um, both of them spoke to, to criminal justice issues. Um, and uh, I, I think there are a lot of suspicions on both sides. Is there always going to be in a situation like that? What are the real in intent behind those uh, behind those messages? But uh, I think at the very least, we can say that uh, the notion that, that the candidates think that uh, voters want to hear and take the opportunity, one of the biggest audiences you can you can have to speak to criminal justice issues, um, suggests or supports the notion that we are in a very special time for this issue and that it's critical for us to take as much advantage of it as possible. So why do you think we're in this this special moment? What led you to you know leave your your very nice job at Pew doing good work there um, to to start up this new organization and why do you think that there's uh, the potential for this group of people to to be able to make a difference in this way? Yeah, I think there, there are really three things that underlie this. The first is, uh, is the success and progress in the states. The second is you know, changes in public opinion. And the third is research. 
So let's take each one of those in turn. Uh, the, the first with respect to success in the states, you know, it, it used to be, uh, I don't know if anybody called this, uh, economists always have uh, great names for things. I don't know if anybody put a name on this, but I would call it sort of the, the, the iron law of, um, of prisons and crime. Uh, it really used to be an article of faith, which is that uh, there was an inverse relationship here and that if uh, prisons went up, then crime would go down and, and vice versa. Uh, and so uh, that, among other things, but that was certainly the, the driving policy notion behind the, the run-up of the prison population in the 70s and the 80s and through the 90s. Um, and then in, in 2007, the state of Texas, uh, where you're based now, um, really just slammed the brakes on that. Um, it was originally from a fiscal perspective where the, the head of the, the Texas House just said, we're not going to build any prisons anymore. They cost too much. Uh, let's figure out something else. And um, they just said no uh, to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which was coming in and saying we need to spend two or three billion more on 14 to 17,000 more prison cells over the next five years and said, instead, we're going to spend a tiny fraction of that on various alternative programs. And uh, that's what they did. The prison population uh, uh, stopped growing. And, um, and obviously, Texas being a fast growing state, that meant the incarceration rate really started to, to drop. And lo and behold, the crime rate did as well. And within a few years, uh, there were a handful of other states that were uh, thinking about this and talking about it at the same time, including South Carolina in, in 2009 and 2010. But, but within about three years, you had a situation where um, both crime and incarceration were falling. And they were falling uh, in tandem in states that had uh, scaled back their incarceration rates and had passed uh, policies, started new programs designed to steer lower level offenders from prison into alternatives. And so that uh, that really, I think, started to create uh, create momentum, uh, even if conservatives and liberals come at this uh, still from different uh destinations and take different <laughs> routes, uh, they are, they're getting to the same destination, uh, which is to say, if you're fiscally, con fiscally conservatives, just say, uh, I don't, um, I don't want to spend money and I don't trust big government programs, uh, and prisons are a big government program, just like anything else. Um, you can come at it from that perspective, or you can say, um, we, we need reform because of, of social, economic, and racial justice issues. Uh, both of those routes take you to saying we should be steering uh, people away from prison who don't need to be there for, for public safety reasons. And so uh, that's, that's number one. Number two is uh, uh, the public uh, really had frankly gotten sick and tired of uh, of increasing prisons and increasing prison costs and increasingly uh, aware that we were not going to build our way uh, to public safety. Um, it's it's a, a little bit hard to say this because I think that the conventional wisdom is that there was a big shift in public opinion. And I'm not sure that that's the case. When you look back at polling, uh, even back in the, in the 80s and 90s at the height of the drug war, um, uh, 
and I certainly saw this uh, on the ground as, as a reporter, uh, there were high levels of support for alternatives, the proverbial quote unquote alternatives to incarceration for lower level offenders, particularly uh, um, drug offenders, drug involved offenders. And, um, and then, so when you, you flash forward to uh, 2010, 2012 or so in there, um, you still find those high level of support. They're higher, but it did not a situation where it shifted from uh, opposition to support. I think it's a support essentially intensified for that. And that in turn was like, reinforced by some of the terrible interactions uh, between uh, police and citizens, whether it was Michael, uh, Michael Brown, uh, situation in Ferguson uh, or some of the other cases that that really galvanized uh, public opinion and opposition and 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 did wake people up to not only not only should we have uh, more alternatives for lower level offenders but we have a system here that is just simply not producing anywhere near enough um, safety or justice and particularly for uh, uh, people who are poor and of color um, and the last thing is is the research piece, and and as much as as I as I think those two first developments are incredibly important, I think the third one is really foundational here, and that is um, is the development of a body of evidence that uh, that points to things that are effective. Uh, by effective, I don't mean uh, they work all the time, or or that uh, they work for everybody, but uh, uh, but to a, a, a series of, of practices and programs that um, uh, that actually do help bend the curve on recidivism, and if you do if you do these things well, you do them right. They're strongly implemented, then um, you can start to see reductions of thirty percent or more in recidivism rates. And I think and really know from our experience across the uh, across the country in red states and blue states alike that um, when when you're able to shift from the nothing works ethic of the 70s, you got to lock them up because we don't know how to change behavior um, to uh, uh, to the last several years now, there is a growing recognition uh, among policymakers that uh, there are things that in fact work, they work fairly well, um, and that if we if we do them right, we can we can achieve more public safety at lower cost. So there are a lot of things you could potentially do with this organization. The council had its big inaugural event uh, in Washington, D.C. this past fall. Um, so you're still in early days. What are the main priorities for you um, as, as the council kind of kicks off its being here and, um, and establishes itself as a player in this space? What do, what do you see as the main goals for the first year? Yeah, I think we have two chief goals for this year. One is to build out the membership, which we're in the process of doing right now. So it's a wonderful uh, process that we're engaged in to scour across the country for uh, roughly 150 people to add to you and the others uh, who are who are serving on our boards, um, and and really put together a an incredibly uh, powerful, strong group of people uh, and start to build their commitment to this organization and this type of, of, of bipartisan data-driven uh, approach. 
we're also going to be making sure that we include directly impacted people. And to me, directly impacted means both people who have been in prison and are under uh, parole, pro probation, supervision, uh, the millions of people who, who have been affected in that way, as well as the people who work in the system itself. Um, these both sides of the equation uh, have been so overlooked in uh, in policy conversations over the years, and they really need to be brought to the center of that conversation. I think it's a real central constituency for the council as an organization. Uh, these are the people whose lives are most directly affected by the system and the people running it and studying it and writing about it have got to incorporate their experiences and their suggestions into their work. Um, and by creating an ongoing forum like the council and opportunities for directly impacted people and victims to interact with and build relationships with policymakers in Washington and in state capitals, I think we're helping to build the proximity that's needed if we're going to make the best decisions about how to improve the system. Uh, and then the second is uh, to get out our first policy pieces. Uh, the first of those is going to be uh, coming out of our federal priorities task force. Um, that is, that is the first one we've put together. It's chaired by former Georgia governor, Nathan Deal, who's one of the most conservative governors in the country, but uh, as, as you well know, led um, uh, six uninterrupted years of criminal justice reform here uh, in Georgia. And um, it also includes our, our trustee co-chairs, Sally Yates and Mark Holden, and a bunch of other uh, terrific people. And they uh, are nearing consensus on a, a broad set of about 15 recommendations for what are the, the next steps that the, the federal government should be taking. Coming out of the First Step Act, um, and not just uh, with respect to federal sentencing, but uh, the group is talking about changes in Medicaid and housing and some other, uh, some other pieces here. But what are the most important politically viable things that the federal government should be doing next? And uh, so we're looking to finish that up and, and get that released and to start to, to build some support for uh, seeing those things happen. I don't think any of us are, uh, uh, are thinking that in an election year, uh, a whole lot uh, of aggressive policy on this front is going to is going to get done uh, or through the Senate. Uh, but um, uh, I think we all we all felt like uh, the time was right to uh, to take a look at what the what those things ought to be and to start laying that groundwork. Uh, the second piece is uh, a a compilation of of policies and practices that ought to stop. Um, and uh, we're, we're well aware that good intentions are not good enough. And there's a lot of policy out there and a lot of programs and practices that are quite common, um, despite what is now a fairly robust uh, set of studies that show that they're, they're not effective. And in some cases, worse than not effective, they're criminogenic and make things worse. And so um, uh, we're in the process of doing a review of the literature there, which of course includes um, uh, a number of the a number of the pieces uh, that you have produced, uh, particularly around ban the box and um, uh, and other items, and um, are are excited about uh, pulling together a a list of things that. Uh, that we really do hope will will uh, have some impact on the field and provide cover to some practitioners and policymakers who are just kind of 
chugging along with things because that's the way they've always been done, but um, uh, but really do need to, to stop happening. So those uh, we, we got a number of other irons in the fire, but uh, we very much believe that um, um, we we're getting to a point now where we're we're going to have the membership and have the, the team together that can put out that can put out pieces that really drive the, the national conversation in in very productive and helpful ways. So we have a lot of listeners who are academic researchers or students, both college and graduate students. Uh, we also have listeners who are criminal justice practitioners. Are there ways for each of these groups to get involved in the council if they're interested in contributing in some way? There certainly will be. Um, and as, 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 as you said, we are in early days and um, there will be a lot more to come on this. But um, in, in the first instance, since we're just about to get this uh, uh, top 10 things to stop doing off the ground, but we'd, we'd love to hear nominations from your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe they could be in contact with you. They could, uh, they could send them to us at info at council on cj.org. Um, uh, but, but very interested to, uh, to sort of put together the broadest possible list of, of candidates for that. And then really wrestle with the, the ones that should come out on top and really have the, have the, that light shine, uh, shined on them. Um, there, um, also fairly soon. And at some point this year, we are going to be starting, uh, an organizational membership, uh, program, uh, as I described earlier, sort of the, the, in, the people who are selected for, uh, individual membership or people who've, uh, demonstrated that uh, track record of uh, accomplishment and achievement in the field and the potential for, for leadership in the field going forward. Um, but no, that can't, in, you know, begin to include, um, uh, everybody who's making a real difference in the field. And so, uh, we'll be building out an organizational, uh, uh membership, uh, piece as well that, that hopefully we'll be able to expose and, uh, a broader set of people to, uh, people who are council leaders and members and create, uh, create various events and, uh, other opportunities, uh, for network and networking and knowledge building, um, among them. Where can listeners learn more about the council on criminal justice and get updates on events and publications if they are interested? Right. Our, our, our website is councilloncj.org. We tweet at councilloncj. And I'm, I'm happy to talk with anybody, um, anybody about this. And you could, you can uh, send a note to info at councilloncj.org. Um, or you can talk with your, your host here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> since, uh, among, uh, the thousand things you already do, you somehow, uh, have made, made time to engage with us. And, um, I, I would, I would sort of also further suggest both generally and specifically, uh, that, uh, listeners, uh, go to our website at councilloncj.org and, and look at, uh, some of the sessions that occurred at our first, uh, for convening last year, uh, actually just a few months ago in October. Um, and I think you'll see there, um, some of the kinds of conversations, the, the, the honest, candid conversations, uh, that need to happen in this field. Um, I was talking before uh, about, uh, frankly, a lot of kumbaya, and there is a lot of kumbaya, but there's still some very deep divisions and um, uh, and disagreements of, of, about things, particularly as we move from uh, talking about lower level offenders to um, 
uh, to people uh, with more serious offenses, longer longer sentences, and and a whole host of other issues around police use of force and and so on. And so, um, uh, in order to make progress at that deeper level, uh, right, we need this kind of forum, and and I think that is illustrated quite well by a number of the conversations that happened at that summit, uh, including the the one that you had, Jennifer, with uh, Diane Williams on stage around uh, what does the research really tell us about what's effective at reducing recidivism. Thank you so much for being here, Adam. This was great. Thank you so much for having me, for being part of our organization, and for your putting the economist lens on these critical criminal justice issues. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner, and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in two weeks.